0: Good morning, Woodhaven. Oh, that was weak. Good morning, Woodhaven. All right, all right. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is good to be back home. Good to be back home. Uh, my family and I—we were—we uh, went on a ten-day stay in Virginia. I do call Virginia home. My uh, my relationship with Virginia is such to where, you know, for those who are married, if you remember going through undergrad. All right, maybe you landed your first job or maybe you found your bride before you landed your first job, all right? And uh, I know for me, I, my, I found my bride before I landed my first real, real job, all Right, And, um, you know, we had our residence, but we would often go visit my, my parents. And I, I loved going back to my mother's. Now, my father was deceased, but I loved going back to mama's house. But mama's house wasn't home. <laughs> right? It wasn't quite home. So when, we, when, when my wife and I, we would get back to our residence, we would just exhale, because it was good to be home. And that's, that's the way it feels today. It is certainly good to be home. But again, it was a blessing to be in Virginia because we had an opportunity to uh, connect with folks who have invested in us in some meaningful ways, um, some seismic ways, and we're certainly grateful for that. Before we begin our time this morning, I want to open up with a word of prayer and uh, we're going to jump into what we're going to be covering this morning. So let's pray. Father, we are, we love you. We love you. And God, we are grateful for just your goodness and your mercy towards us. We've sung songs that, that, that remind us of those things. We've sung, we've sung songs that express our heart's position, our heart's disposition to you regarding the fact that you are holy, you are good, you are wise. And Father, I am just grateful for the opportunity for us to to gather in this space and to be reminded of those things because we need it, Lord. So I pray for our time. Would you use this time to exalt your son? Would you use this time to make, to make much of Jesus? And through it, I pray, God, that we would be built up and that we would be built together. And I pray that in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this morning, we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation. Hold your breath. All right. You can exhale. And, um, <laughs> We're going back to the book that depicts a dragon attempting to eat a pregnant woman and her child, for those who are acquainted with Revelation. All right, so we're going to be there, uh, mainly due to the fact that we know that the book of Revelation in general, for our purposes, the seven letters, they, they've informed the church in, uh just they've challenged, they've guided, they've, in, they've informed the church in a missional way. And we're going to go there this morning because I believe there's much that we can glean from the book of Revelation. Uh, since the last time that we were there, um, we dealt with the first letter, which was written to the church in Ephesus. And today we're going to move on actually to the second letter. And we were reminded during that time that Jesus's message to the church in Ephesus was this. He wanted to point to the danger of leaving your first love and finding your passion and affection in something else other than Christ himself and his kingdom. So we were, we were reminded of that. That was Jesus' message to that church. Um, and he had an exhortation for them as well. He wanted them to assess their affections. And I think that's appropriate for us, assessing our affections and uh, He challenged them to live with greater fervent fervor and intensity for Him. Um, so, we're, again, we're going to be in the, the the second letter to the church in Smyrna. Let me just again get this out here. I, I feel a need to, to to qualify things. Here's why, because I know a lot of times when we're working with this particular book. We we have our we have our hermeneutical systems locked and loaded, and we're ready to just plat out, just lay it out there. That's what plat out means, right? We're just ready to to lead in uh, and just lay out this hermeneutical sy- system, and we and we've got all the answers, but we may be missing what the Lord is actually trying to communicate to us through this letter. So I my my I say that because um, my my point today isn't to wax eloquent on any particular hermeneutical position, uh, any, t- any, any particular es- eschatological position, in-time position, I'm not going to wax eloquent on that. If you want to have a cup of coffee, we can talk about that. Certainly, absolutely. Um, because again, we just, I don't want to miss what the Lord is communicating to his bride in these letters. So again, today we're going to be in the second letter, which is written to the church in Smyrna. And I've got my clicky. All right, there's my clicky. There we go. It's not called a clicky. <laughs> Can you guys see that? Kind of, sort of. Put an arrow there. Got to kind of swint. But we're going to be, again, in the um, the second letter. It's written to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is about 35 miles north of Ephesus. Uh, it's on the east side of the Aegean Sea. Smyrna is a city that Uh, historically, in terms of some of um, the things that have taken place within the city itself, is very similar to Detroit. It's a city that has experienced severe economic decline, the city that was destroyed, but the city that was reborn, a city that was reborn. And, uh, you know, I I believe they even had a a mantra in, 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 in Smyrna. They even had shirts that said Smyrna versus everybody. All right? <laughs> you got that. All right. Now, this was a city that had a very strong allegiance to Rome. Again, we're dealing, this is the first century, had a very strong allegiance to Rome, but also note that this is a city that was actually the, the first Asian city to build a, temperate, uh, a temple to the emperor Tiberius. So a very strong allegiance. And lastly, before we get into the actual book itself, This is the city where the church father, Polycarp, the name ring a bell? If not, just do some some studying, right? Google it, right? But Polycarp was martyred there. He was martyred there, right? So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation singular, not plural. We're going to look at verses 8 through 11. And again, this is the letter to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear By the second death. As we consider what we just read, it is undeniable. Again, it is undeniable that this church, the Christians in Smyrna, they are a persecuted church. This is a church that's encountering severe and difficult circumstances. This is a church that is marginalized politically, uh, economically, religiously, and socially. And this marginalization is even leading to imprisonment and for some, death. They are under an immense trial. And this morning, when we consider just the trial, the persecution, the suffering that Smyrna is encountering, encountering, as we consider that, I believe that this this letter um, I believe that it, it actually speaks to how we ought to face trials. Trials are something that's not just exclusive to the, the Christians in Smyrna. If you look at church history, uh, trials is something that Christians of all kinds and all flavors, they encounter. And we know why we encounter trials, because we live in a fallen, beat-up world. And again, what we're going to do with this particular letter, we want to look at three ways that the letter to the church in Smyrna speaks to how we are to face trials. What I'm not going to do is have you raise your hand and ask you, are you facing a trial this month? Nope, nope, nope. We're not going to do that. Someone told me going into ministry, said, Marcel, just remember, you know, you're either going into a trial or you're coming out of a trial. There is no in between. There is no in-between. Some of you are like, I did not sign up for this. <laughs> but we live in a fallen world, all right? But there's hope, certainly hope. And I, and again, I want to spend some time here today because trials are very common. Uh, but spending time in, in this letter today and looking at the three ways that Smyrna speaks to how we're to face trials, uh, my point here is not to be exhaustive. Uh, But I think this is going to be helpful for us in just being able to recalibrate our thoughts about how we're to, again, face trials. And ultimately, where we want to land regarding trials, the trials that we face, ultimately where we want to land is here. We want to know that God uses difficult circumstances of all sorts for our ultimate good. That's our title this morning. God uses, it's a lengthy one, God uses difficult circumstances of all sorts for our ultimate good. So here's, here's our first thought, first consideration this morning. as It pertains to the letter to the church in Smyrna. And the, the first way in which it encourages us to face a trial. See this statement here we need to lean into the character of God when facing trials. So let's work this through. The letter begins with the self-description of Jesus in verse 8, and the self-description is that he is the first and the last who died and came to life. And I think it's necessary that we note that Throughout the, the, the letters to the churches, there are seven self descriptions, and these are self descriptions that are given to each church. And certainly they begin with the words of, and then the self description follows. And these self descriptions, if you want to make note, here's, here's why they're employed, here's what they function as they function as a cultural expression that uses imagery that each church could relate to. Like when I said, hey, Smyrna versus everybody, you guys got that, right? That's a cultural expression that the church could relate to. But it's also reinforcing the the reality that Jesus has all authority and all power. And in verse 8, what we need to be reminded of most, uh, and what Smyrna specifically, what they need to be reminded of most, leading into the difficult circumstance that they are encountering. Again, this is a persecuted church. They're facing severe persecution. They need to be be reminded that Jesus is the first and the last. He died and came to life. He is none other than the risen Lord who beat death. He was victorious over death, and he is the sovereign ruler. Just take some time to think about that. He beat death. He's victorious. He's the sovereign ruler. And this is huge because I believe that understanding who Jesus is it's crucial, because understanding who he is becomes our very, the, the very fuel that we need when we're facing trials. And I think this is, this is, this is it's, it's helpful to think about it in maybe this way. Um, we all have cars, right? <laughs> and well, many of us have cars. If you have a car, you have to put gasoline in the car. And not only do you have, to, you have to put the right type of gasoline, right? What's the most cost efficient? But no, in order for that engine to run, to, to run efficiently and effectively, we've gotta make sure that we've got gas in the car. And I believe that when we think about the, fre- the frequency and the type of gas that we put into the car, it also applies to the frequency at which we actually read God's word right? So gas is critical to a car, but also reading God's word is critical to us. I would also go on to say that our theology, it matters as well. So not only does reading God's word, not only is that helpful, but also our theology serves as fuel when we're facing trials. And you think about this, you know, because we all face very rough terrains in life, We all face those. But when we're facing these rough terrains in life, we need to to know that, look, we can lean into something that is solid, something that is true regarding God and his character. In verse 9, just follow me there, Jesus states that while Smyrna was materially impoverished, the rich While they're materially impoverished, they don't have much, right? They're a marginalized group, They are rich. So my question is: I'm reading through this, they're rich in what? Well, they're, they're rich in their understanding of who God is. They're rich in their understanding of who God is in his character, who God is in his sovereignty, who God is in his wisdom, and in his goodness. They're rich in that. They're rich because of their deliberate and resolute faith and trust in all that God is, and all that God has done, and all that he will do. Again, they are leaning into the character of God. They are intentionally leaning into the character of God, his holy, righteous, wise, loving, and good character. They're leaning into that. And this is a God who... We think about who God is in his character. We think about who God is. This is a God who who, who knows our pain. Consider what what Jesus says in verse 9. He says, I know. He knows our pain, and he's acquainted with our grief. And the church in Smyrna, Smyrna, again, is leaning into the character of God. My question for you today is, will you, when you encounter house? Will you? Here's the second thought for our consideration. It pertains to the letter to the church in smyrna And in this, this, this second thought, we see that, all right, we've got leaning into the character of God. The second thought has everything to do with having a gospel-shaped perspective on trials and suffering. And say that again, have a gospel-shaped perspective on trials and suffering in suffering. If you drop down to verse 10, the church is told, do not fear. If That's one thing that we do well. We are fearful. (laughs) Some of you are like, no, I'm not. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But we are, we tend to be very fearful. Jesus specifically says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. He even gives them the deets, right? He gives them the details. That's what deets are, right? Cultural expression. He gives them the deets uh, and he unpacks for them what it is that they, they're actually going to encounter. For some, it's going to be imprisonment. Again, for others, it's going to be death. But when we think about that statement, do not, do not fear. And again, it's, it's, it's a very common thing for us as human becomings, to borrow a statement from the late R.C. R. Sproul human becomings. He said human beings. No, human becomings. Right? But it's very easy for us to fear. Hear what Jesus states in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, about us fearing. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, let's take this out. Let's take it out a little further. Consider what John states in his gospel, chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, don't fear, because I've overcome the world. And we know that when facing trials and suffering, again, there is a real element of fear right? It's kind of what makes us human. We tend to fear, that real element of fear. But fear gives way to a gospel-shaped perspective on trials and suffering. Here's why, because it it helps us to recognize God's ultimate purpose through suffering. It helps us to recognize that. Hear what Greg Hedges has has to say about this and the way that he frames it. He says, God uses suffering, all suffering, without exception, to accomplish his ultimate purpose and our everlasting good. God uses suffering to do this, and this is our destination, conformity to the image of Jesus. He uses it for that. In a gospel-shaped perspective on trials, Yes, there's conformity to the image of Jesus, but a gospel-shaped perspective on trials, that's what actually facilitates, and it brings about faithfulness and perseverance. How do we persevere? How do we remain faithful? We need to have a gospel-shaped perspective on the trials that we have. And when we have this, this gospel-shaped perspective on the trials that we encounter— we realize that the tough stuff of life, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. we encounter trials, we know that these trials are tailor-made. I didn't say tailor Swift, right? They are tailor, cultural expression again, they are tailor-made, right? And these trials are tailor-made and they come from, they're being sifted through the fingers of a, a, a wise and loving father. Think about that. They're tailor-made. But we also need to recognize that certainly we got we're experiencing these trials because our world is it's it's fallen, it's broken, and it's full of trial and tribulation, suffering and pain. Gotta remember that God is accomplishing his ultimate purpose and our everlasting good when we encounter the trials that we encounter. He's doing that. Consider this quote from Milton Vincent as he kinda unpacks that for us. What does it look like? Can you guys see that? Okay, I'll read it out loud. Milton Vincent states, more than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations and thereby position myself to gain full benefits from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. And every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purposes in me. When I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news Out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to His gospel purposes and do unto me, do do good unto me, by improving my character and making me conformed to the image of Christ. A gospel shaped perspective lands us there. So my question, before we move on to this third, this third point, this third way that this letter encourages us to face trials, my question for you is that will you cultivate a gospel-shaped perspective toward the tailor-made trials that you encounter? Cultivate it. Here's the third and final thought for our consideration within the letter to the church in Smyrna and how it, how it encourages us to, to, to face trials. The third and final thought is that we look to our future hope. So we need to lean into the character of God. We need to have a gospel-shaped perspective. But we also need to look to our future hope. Here in verse 11, we encounter um, this, this statement, He that has an ear, let him hear verse 11 of Revelation 2. And this, this is given as a prophetic warning, technically, to all seven churches. And this, this prophetic warning is for the churches to open up their minds to kingdom truth. Right? Certainly, we need to do that. We need to open up our minds to kingdom truths. But then the letter, it speaks to this, this weighty dr- uh, truth in addressing our future hope. Okay? The letter reads, at the bottom of verse 11, it says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Think about that. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is that second death? What specifically is John, what specifically is John like, what is he zeroing in on? Well, if we go to Revelation chapter 14, You can turn with me there, and we look specifically at verses 9 through 11, and I want to read that out loud for us. Verse 9 reads, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on its forehead on their forehead, or on his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of, a whole, of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Interesting. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image, who whoever receives the mark in its name. And so this second death is speaking to what we would say is a a literal, conscious, eternal hell. No, we don't hear that often. Not, specific, not specifically here, because we certainly, we, we, there is a literal conscious eternal hell, right? And, and we, we preach that and we, 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 we understand that, right? But again, that second death is speaking specifically to that. But here's what we don't want to miss it pertains to the trials that we encounter. We've got to remember that this bitter cup of God's wrath, who drunk that for us? Jesus did. Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for us. That bitter cup that was reserved for us, and any and all suffering that we experience in this life, it doesn't prepare us for that second death. Right? There is a future hope, and that future hope is the very thing that we're being, we're being prepared for. Let's go to Revelation chapter Revelation chapter twenty-one. Because I believe it captures, this particular chapter uh, chapter captures this future hope very well. We're going to look specifically at verses 1 through 5. And it reads, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Behold, the dwelling place of God is uh, the, do- the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Hear that? Right? He's going to wipe away every tear from their eye." And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And in verse 5, I'm going to paraphrase this, because Jesus is comprehensively making all things new. That's the future hope there. Jesus is comprehensively making all things new. Because Because of what he's accomplished for us, Woodhaven, we have a future hope, and that hope is secure. Did you hear me? That hope is secure, and we can rest and rejoice in knowing that despite the difficult circumstances that we face, God, Scripture says, God hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, and because of that, guess what we have? A future hope, right? We have a future hope. And there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from that reality. I love how Paul, how Paul, um, how he communicates that in Romans chapter 8. But then I also like how he speaks to this future hope in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. And I'm going to read that because I think it's worth considering this future hope. Paul says, for this light momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are transient, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal we have a future hope it is secure it is eternal and it's a glory beyond all comparison and there's nothing that can cancel out that reality again there's nothing that can cancel out that reality so we begin our time this morning reading the letter to the church in Smyrna and what what we wanted to see or wanted to see was that the letter really comes to a church that's encountering very difficult circumstances, particularly through the trials and the suffering that they're facing. And as we're reading the letter and we're considering the ways in which it speaks to how we are to face trials, again, where we want to land is in knowing that God uses difficult circumstances of all sorts for our ultimate good. And we do recognize that because we live in a fallen world that has been cursed by sin, and that's a reality. Things aren't, they're they're broken. They're not working as they were designed. Because of that, we experience death and suffering and pain, and that's real for us, right? But, but, But God, through Christ and his atoning work on the cross, he literally has flipped the curse on its head, right? Flipped it on its head. Let me say it a different way. He's dismantled it dismantled the curse. And again, he does this by becoming, guess what? The curse for us. He becomes the curse for us and he bears the pain and guilt and the shame of our sin for us on the cross. And in doing this, he cancels out the debt that we owed because of our sin, we owe a debt to a holy, righteous, just God. But here's the thing. In doing that, it changes the game for us. It literally, because he flipped it on its head, he dismantles it. It changes the game for us. Because God is working through our trials. And he is exploiting suffering. I mean, when I say that, he is exploiting Suffering to accomplish his ultimate saving purpose in making us look like Jesus. He exploits it, he's sovereign over it, and he uses it for his ultimate good. And that's, that's, that's great news for us. So as we are encountering trials, that's what it means to be human, right? we are going to encounter some trials We can be encouraged by this letter to the church in Smyrna that the way in which we need to face trials is that we need to lean into the character of God, like seriously lean into the character of God. And you don't get there without this. You don't get there without that. We need to have a gospel-shaped perspective on trials. Again, a gospel-shaped perspective on trials And when we have that gospel-shaped perspective on trials, it positions us, because of all that Christ has done for us, it positions us to consider our future, say it with me, hope. Oh, that was bad. It positions us to consider our future hope. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the, the love and mercy that you've demonstrated towards us through the Lord Jesus. And we're grateful that we can be reminded of such great truths, particularly when we consider trials that we encounter. Because we live in a fallen world. There is death, there is suffering, there is pain. But God, what you've accomplished for us through Christ, it, it, it dismantles the curse that's affected our world and that's affected us. And when we encounter the trials that we, that we face, we can, encounter, we, we can encounter them knowing that we have a hope. And that hope, it flows from the cross. It flows from our redemption. It affects us now, and it affects us in the future. And I pray, God, that we would recalibrate our thoughts to the legitimacy of that truth.